This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with David Canfield. Hello. And a returning beloved guest, our Hollywood editor, Hilary Busis. My God, what an introduction. <laughs> I mean, really? like raising the bar, setting it impossibly high. Uh, the people have been clamoring to have you back. And uh, here you are because you have one of the interviews on this week's episode. Um, but let's start with David's. David, you talked to Lizzie Kaplan, who is one of the busiest people on television, maybe always has been one of the busiest people on television. Um, but she's all over the place. Um, and what did you guys talk about? Yeah, we had to talk about Fatal Attraction. Uh, She is taking on the role of Alex Forrest. Uh, It's a very, very, very different show from the original movie. And I think from the outset, she wanted to establish why she took on the role, is very aware of the questions as to why the show exists at all, and whether we have too many reboots. Yes, she's tapped in in that regard. Um, But, you know, she has some really interesting thoughts on why... You know, for her as an actor, this was an interesting challenge to take on and put in a little bit of context as to this overall moment for her, because, of course, she's a, I think, a bigger Emmy contender for Fleischman is in trouble. That show is looking like a really strong player. Um, But between them, really exciting year for her. Yeah. Let's listen to your conversation with Lizzie Kaplan. All right. Lizzie Kaplan, uh, you're here for a pretty busy year. I just watched Fatal Attraction, some of it. Uh, You have Fleischman is in trouble. And I'm struck by the fact that these are both shows in which we have a marriage in crisis. And your character comes in to occupy this kind of unusual, very compelling, I'd say pretty modern protagonist role. You're kind of a disruptor. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's it's been very entertaining. And a couple of these press opportunities to see people try to bridge a gap between <laughs> traction and Fleischman is the trouble. That was good. That was a good How one. How did I do? I did okay? Okay. All right. <laughs> right. Uh, I do think there are interesting parallels between them, um, but let's let's start with Fatal Attraction. Um, I know you said, and, and I agree with you, that the original film couldn't be made today. So why remake it? Um, and I'm asking sort of beyond the obvious, you know, reframing lens, which this show does really in, in a really interesting way. Um, like, what about the material to you when this project came your way felt, you know, rich, untapped, et cetera? Well, I'm a massive fan of the film Fatal Attraction. Um, I've been asked recently, like, do I remember the first time I saw it? I don't. I know it was five when it came out, so it wasn't then. But I definitely saw it too early. Um <laughs> 
as I think a lot of us probably did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I rewatched it recently uh, when I was sent the first script for the show. And it's always interesting to revisit things that you saw when you were younger. Um, I find it's always, it's kind of endlessly fascinating to see the the different ways that you watch it as you yourself change as a mm-hmm. as an audience member and your circumstances in life and as you mature. Um, so when I first saw Fatal Attraction, I was just in it for the scares. I fully went along on the ride as intended, uh, which was, here's a story about this man who makes one mistake and it leads to this horrible series of events perpetrated by this evil woman. And the only way that there can be a happy ending is if this horrible woman is killed. (laughs) Now, in rewatching the film... I found, and I I really don't think it was fully because I was looking at potentially playing a version of of Alex Forrest. I think it's more that I'm a citizen of the world in 2023, and that story just doesn't make as much sense to me as it used to. I had more questions about Alex, about her motivations, about what happened in her life that got her to this moment in time where these decisions felt like the right decisions for her. And I know from some of the interviews that I've read with Glenn Close, who's so protective of Alex Forrest, and she had done all of this work um, on Alex's mental state. And it's all right there on the screen for the audience to see. And yet nobody was really looking at that moment in time in 1987. They didn't really care to ask those questions or get the answers to to them. So while I, too, feel like whenever there's a word of a reboot, I kind of recoil, there was something about this that felt like, oh, this is kind of an interesting idea to go back and ask those questions when we have more time, eight full hours, to really explore these characters. And maybe hopefully make a version of it that honors all of the work that Glenn Close did on mental illness and really focus on the mental illness part of it. That just felt like, oh, okay, I could sink my teeth into this thing, even though I too feel like this is, I mean, it's a beloved film for me. Um, But it just felt like one of those rare opportunities where it made sense to reopen the book. Hmm. Yeah, that Glenn Close performance is so good. And one of the, I rewatched the movie recently too. And one of the interesting things about it is there's this kind of fascinating tension between her performance and the movie because the movie has these conventions that you're talking about. And she is just, she plays her with so much empathy and nuance. And it made me think of this show and it did feel kind of in spirit of that and honoring that. So it's interesting to hear uh, that that was top of mind. Yes, and Alex Cunningham, who is our showrunner and creator of the of the series. Obviously, she's a woman, and her interests were very much in line with mine. I, full disclosure, have not seen any of the episodes, so I am answering questions in the spirit of what I feel like we were aiming to do. Um, so sure. it's kind of risky, <laughs> risky, because I don't know. I was very much an actor for hire on this one. And I hope that we at least addressed 
some of those things uh, while also still honoring the film, which is great. It's it's so interesting to me that it can feel both, I mean, dated's not even the right word, but just that these questions, again, that we're asking today that didn't occur to people to ask back then, how that can be very valid and how there could feel like there's lots of room to ask those questions. Well, at the same time, the film itself doesn't feel particularly dated to me. I mean, yes, New York looks different. Yes, she's got very 80s hair or whatever, but it's still scary. It still Mm -hmm. works on all of the levels uh, that it set out to work on. It's still sexy and exciting and, and all of those things while also having room to ask further questions. Yeah. When I think of Alex Cunningham, your showrunner, I, I also consider her a very you know entertaining and fun writer. And that's an interesting balance of this show, too, is it is doing that work, but it is still a thriller. Um, and you have to balance those things. I'm curious for you, stepping into this part, a part that has been, you know, lives in pop culture <laughs> so vividly, what did it look like for you to even just prepare, like, the line, I'm not going to be ignored, and know that that is going to be watched and, and studied and scrutinized in the way you deliver it. Like, how did you think about stepping into the iconic part of this part, of this role? Yes, it's always a daunting task. I'm scared still. Uh, I ha- Again, I haven't watched it, but I'm, I'm more nervous about how people will receive this than plenty of other things. Uh, I I guess I felt slightly primed for it because I had done a similar thing uh, in recent years. I was on a show called Castle Rock and uh, played Annie Wilkes, which was another incredibly iconic uh, cinematic performance by Kathy Bates. And for that one, it felt more important to me to honor... Kathy Bates's take on Annie Wilkes. To me, that is the Annie Wilkes. And I know that there's been stage productions of it. I haven't seen them. Uh, but I didn't like the idea of starting from scratch on that. I wanted it to feel like that Annie Wilkes. Like the, the character that I was doing could become the Kathy mm-hmm. Bates version of Annie Wilkes. Um, and that was a totally daunting and overwhelming task as well. This, because our story is so different, it's set in modern times. Again, the questions that we're asking are totally different. The film felt like fully a jumping off point and whatever interpretation I had of Alex Forrest had to be completely my own. Now, we put some little nods to the to the film throughout, obviously that line um, and a couple of other little things. Uh, but it, it needed to feel like a fresh performance because it she is such a different... Alex, because the show itself is presenting Alex in a completely different light, or at least, you know, attempting to give her perspective on things. It didn't feel right to just grab as much as I could from Glenn Close's performance. Mm. And while I guess that makes it, like, slightly less intimidating, you know... I, I would I would be thinking all of the same things as an audience member watching this. I, I definitely would. Uh, it's it's a fun new like niche for you though, <laughs> taking on crazy, icon- <laughs> crazy iconic women from the eighties. Yeah, I mean, who else is on the list? Ooh, good question. <laughs> I mean, 
the list is endless. It kind of is. That's yeah. more Hollywood's problem than yours. But <laughs> Sure. sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and again, I've been guilty of this in the past myself. Like the, the first thing you say is, well, why would you remake that? Why would you re- remake that as soon as you read that something iconic yeah. is being remade? But or there's only there's only remakes being made. There's only sequels. But I don't know. I feel like we're drowning in content. I feel like if you want to avoid remakes and reboots, you could still there's a buffet of choices, and you'd never have to see a single remake, and you still would not have enough hours in your lifetime to get through everything. So if it's not for you, it's not for you. It's not for you. It's also so much a part of the landscape now that there's an incredible like variety of reboots that are. You know, you are also in, for a very short period of time, the Party Down reboot, which is a very different kind of show. It's a much more recent show, and that reboot is wonderful and delightful, and not at all in the category even of a Fatal Attraction reboot, or something that's even more update I guess you could say. Yeah. No, you're right. I guess it's like there should be different subcategories, um... You know, the the Castle Rock thing was like a prequel. Uh, Fatal Attraction is its own beast. And Party Down is just, you know, an extension of the story 12 years later, which is shocking in its own right. I know. I I had to do a double take there for a second. In real time fan of the original, it was a bit jarring for me. (laughs) Oh, you were a fan. Nice to meet you. I was was here. (laughs) I had stars on my parents' TV. (laughs) (laughs) Stop bragging. (laughs) you come to the new yorker radio hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from whether it's bruce springsteen or Questlove or olivia rodrigo liz cheney or the godfather of artificial intelligence jeffrey hinton or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at the new yorker so join us every week on the new yorker radio hour wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I wanted to ask you a little bit about preparation with a role of this length. Uh, You talked a little bit about method acting with my colleague Joy Press last year, Um, and, and you said you didn't exactly have the ambitions of a method actor, but that it doesn't necessarily seem like an option for most, you know, new moms, working moms in the industry. Uh, but I'm interested in as as you've gotten more of these long-form intensive opportunities, like have they changed the way you work? I mean, this is an intense show and you mentioned it's eight hours. So I, I would think that as you've done more of these, you've kind of had to maybe adjust how you do it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I've had to adjust for many circumstantial reasons first and foremost on these being a new mom and, you know, when you walk in the door, nobody needs to be, (laughs) nobody needs to be dealing with Alex Forrest when you have to, you know, give your kid a bath. 
Uh, <laughs> I, I just don't see how. I, I, I and I haven't. I, I think it would be a. It would be an interesting adjustment if I had been a method actress before, and mm. I wasn't. Uh, I, I never have been. Um, so yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't have any judgment towards people who do it that way. Everybody needs to do whatever work they need to do to mean it and be authentic between action and cut and however you get there, more power to you. I'm just of the school that you can be yourself right up until action and shake it off as soon as they say cut. And if you're able to feel authentic within that period of time without maintaining that intensity on either side of it, then great. I mean, that's what, that's what's always worked for me. Hmm. So going back to something like masters of sex, um, which I think was kind of your first lead role of that profile in a series. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, you know, what did you learn essentially from that kind of experience of the, the demands of a, of taking on a part like that, of the time commitment, and of, you know, being able to stay with a character for, I think it was four seasons, so a really long period of time. Yeah, I love it. I, I've i really enjoyed getting to do these limited series, uh, their, their own beast, and I really enjoy them. But I also miss the longevity and, of course, the job security of an ongoing series. But I came up doing TV. I consider myself a television actress, like, <laughs> before that was anything other than not a movie actress. Like, we, I remember going to the Golden Globes for Masters of Sex, and, like, the, the TV people had to sit, like, on the top tier, and then the movie people got to sit near the stage, because those are the movie people. Uh, yeah. And it, it felt like they were the important ones, and we were just the TV people. Now, obviously, the landscape has changed totally in every way. There's no difference anymore. There, There's not a single, seemingly not a single massive A-list movie star that isn't trying their hand at either a limited series or an ongoing series. Um, so the the times have definitely changed. Masters of Sex, it wasn't that long ago, and yet so much has changed around it. Uh, we used to shoot, you know, I think one season we maybe shot 12 episodes, other, other seasons maybe 10. But we shot it within the three to four month period, which was very true to a television schedule or a yeah. prestige television schedule. You know, network TV, you shoot each episode in like six to eight days or something. We had a bit more time uh, per episode on Masters of Sex. And so it's it's very intense. It was, it was very intense uh, for me because of all the things you're saying. The, it was the first really big opportunity of that caliber that I had been offered. And it totally consumed my entire life. I was not a method actor, but I ate, slept, and lived constantly thinking about Virginia Johnson. Uh, and I'm, I'm really happy that I got to do that role at that point in my life. I think we shot the pilot when I was 29. Uh, I was single. I didn't have a mortgage to pay. It was just, I could give everything to this role. Uh, and it was so fulfilling, so creatively fulfilling in every way. It, it 
changed so much uh, in my professional career. Uh, I still kind of feel shocked that they picked like a scrappy comedy actress to, to do that job. But now the time commitments for, you know, fewer episodes usually uh, has extended. It's like double the amount of time um, to shoot eight episodes. And in a way it allowed me to have a bit more breathing room, more time for real life stuff because it's not, you know, 15, 16, 17 hour days five days a week for four months straight. It's a heavy week and then a slightly lighter week and a couple days off here and there. And so lifestyle-wise, it was conducive to getting to, I guess, juggle more than one thing. But this is not a story that's unique to me. I, I do have a mortgage to pay now. I do have a family. And... It, I've really enjoyed trying to figure out that balance. I think I have experienced success in balancing it and also feeling like I'm failing uh, both sides, my personal life and uh, my mm. professional life. But I, I think that's just the gig now. Uh, I, I think that's just how it's always going to feel. I've, I felt it on Fleischman. I felt it on Fatal Attraction, and I don't know many actresses who I've talked to that that feel like they're really killing both sides of the game all the time. And I, th- I think like anything else, as you get older, it's about accepting not having a full handle on everything instead of killing yourself trying to do the impossible, which is, you know, be perfect in either realm. Hmm. And... Those two projects are kind of major projects, and that's opportunity, right? Yeah. I mean, it's wild that, first of all, just doing two huge jobs back-to-back, I've not done that before. Just a a full calendar year of working in two different cities, Um, and then I really didn't anticipate it happening the the first year of parenthood, Uh, and I'm very grateful. I loved my first year of parenthood because I, yeah, I, I, it, it, the, the only word is really gratitude because I didn't have to deal with the universal feeling that everybody I know who had kids later in life where they, you know, you have a career, you have a whole identity outside of being a parent and then you have a baby. And for many people, you are with that baby only, uh, Mm -hmm. And like day in and day out, and you have to grapple with what that does to your outside identity. Uh, And I feel very lucky that I got to do all of the things that I love for myself while at the same time, you know, the, the, the things that make me feel like myself while at the same time having this new baby. It's, I don't know how I lucked out in that way, uh, but I, I, I'm full of gratitude for it. Like, I, I, I still really, I can't believe it. Hmm. I think with these two roles, there's a kind of a, you know, you're talking about Glenn Close bringing all this stuff to Fatal Attraction and to this part that is on in the, in the performance, even if it's not necessarily on the page. And so I'm wondering, let's take Fleischman, for example. Um, like, your performance in that finale for me is just so raw and heartbreaking. What kind of connection do you find to a character like Libby that 
allows you to go to a place like that? That was Fleischman, I feel like maybe once a, a decade, last time being Masters of Sex, I get to be a part of something and, and play a role that's just so beautifully realized on the page. Uh, Fleischman is so literary, uh, obviously mm-hmm. Taffy, Bredesser, Ackner, who wrote the novel, she also wrote the show. And Libby, my character, is a journalist, um, in some ways a stand-in for Taffy, although I'd argue that all of the characters have shades of Taffy in them. But hmm. it was just there. It was there. Um, all of it. It was so beautifully written. And, you know, oftentimes with the television schedule, you tackle whatever your week's work is, and then you move on to the next week, and there's not a lot of time to sit and reflect. Uh, with Fleischman, because Libby was also the narrator, I was constantly reading the voiceover um, because there would be changes and I'd have to re-record it and I'd be recording it in my apartment in New York and then there was the whole like official recording that happened afterwards and like doing it to picture. And so I really got to marinate in her dialogue and it's brilliant. I think she's brilliant. Uh, I, I think it would be hard for any actress to not benefit from just getting to say those words. Um, mm-hmm. I, she's just, I, I just, I love her writing. Um, and it was a weird thing to, in many ways, like, like Libby, we had a similar kind of upbringing, you know, this culturally Jewish without being religious Upbringing, and I, I've said, you know, it's I feel like the West Coast version of Libby. Um, and there was just this like the, the way that Judaism was kind of tackled in that show was so interesting to me because it, it was always there, but in the way that it's there in my life, which is in the background instead of in the forefront. So there was this instant connection to Libby, and I, I felt like we had so many similarities in terms of how we were raised and how we saw the world. And so there was that half of it. But then the other half of it was Libby was almost this cautionary tale, although I don't, not really a cautionary tale for me because I'm already past the age where I could have made the same decisions that Libby made, which was giving up her career to move to the suburbs and raise kids and then waking up one day and being 40 or 41 and wondering where all of the things that made her feel like herself went. Uh, How did it happen? It's like it it happened to her when she wasn't even paying attention. Now that is the total opposite of my experience because, you know, I had this brand new baby and the, the wonder and awe of it all was very fresh and very new in my head. It was not Mm -hmm. something I was jaded about. It was not something that made me feel penned in or bored or trapped and I was exploring these issues on a television show, so like acting in a TV show, which is my identity, my professional identity. And right. so it was this, I don't know, so much of it was felt <laughs> cosmically designed to be like, see, you're lucky. Stop complaining. And, <laughs> you know, I'll find a reason to complain about anything. But my husband, I remember one one night I was, it was a particularly 
long and arduous work week and you don't get to sleep in with a baby. Like that's just gone forever. And I'm still, I haven't recovered from that sad reality, but I was trying to learn these lines and, you know, Taffy writes these epic scenes that are eight minutes long and monologue heavy. And I was trying to learn all of this. And I was, he was running lines with me and I was like, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know. I can't do this. I can't do this. And he read the scene with me and he's like, do you realize how lucky you are that you just get to say this? Like, don't lose that. Like, this is a rare role oh. that has, that has fallen in your lap and just remember that. And it was really what I needed to hear in that moment. It's like, oh yeah, I, I, I don't get to say things that are this poignant and beautiful ever that like crystallize how I myself feel about certain things about middle age. And now that it's been released into the world, I know that it's resonated with a lot mm -hmm. of other women. And it's just, it's nice to be reminded sometimes that this is not a normal job. It's a job that I feel very lucky to be in. And while the minutia can start to make it feel more difficult than anything else, the, the reality is it's it's a joy to get to do this and, and a privilege. Okay, Hillary, so you talked to Kelly Freeman Craig, who is not just the director of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, but feels like a director who uh, people who know uh, have been keeping an eye on her for a long time. She made The Edge of Seventeen. She really feels like she's been uh, building on the way up. And I loved Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret as a kid. I think you did as well. And she did write by this book, which I'm just so thrilled to hear. Yes, it is so exciting to see an adaptation of a book that really understands the spirit of the book. It's a faithful adaptation, but it's not slavish. It it does everything that you want it to do while also building on the original story. I talked to Kelly a little bit about uh, bulking up the part um, of Margaret's mother in the movie, which is played by Rachel McAdams really beautifully, um, kind of adding another element aimed maybe toward people who read Margaret when they were kids themselves. Um, and yeah, just the, the amazing way that this 53-year-old book uh, manages to stay relevant and timeless and, uh, and yeah, the process of translating it. Um, and we also talk a little bit about our own embarrassing adolescences. So, uh, wow. Breaking oh. news. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, well, I'm excited to hear about all of that and more in your conversation with the director of Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret Kelly Freeman-Craig. Okay. Hello, Kelly. Um, it's so nice to have you. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you about this movie and this book. And uh, Me too. I did just watch a Judy Bloom Forever, the documentary about Judy um, that's going to be on Amazon soon. And yes. in it, she says, which is great and a great watch if you're a fan of, you have been a fan of her work, you know, if you read it when you were younger. Um, she says in that documentary that she remembers absolutely everything that happened to her in her childhood from like third grade onward. And I was just wondering, I mean, you you write and direct these movies that are so like thoughtful and feel so true to the experience of an adolescent. So um, do you have that same kind of recall? Oh my God. So that's so funny you mentioned that because I had the, I, I found that so amazing and kind of terrifying <laughs> that she could remember <laughs> that vividly. No, thankfully I can't. I mean, <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, no, I feel like I've, I've blocked some of it. Um, but there are certain things that I do that I absolutely, that are like seared in forever. 
when I think about adolescence, it's that it's that quote, you know, you don't remember what people say or what they do. You remember how they made you feel. I feel like adolescence. Mm-hmm. I feel that way about adolescence. You know, um, I can remember the feelings very vividly and certain moments are like crystallized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any uh, any Margaret moments as the marketing campaign for this movie calls them those, uh, you know, particularly awkward or challenging oh and memorable like from you know middle school that are really seared into your brain not to start off I guess by telling asking for what 17 magazine would call like your most uh your yes. m- most embarrassing moment but <laughs> oh my it's funny it's funny you mentioned that that was always my favorite part of 17 magazine trauma rama that's page. what it was called yes, yes. Uh-huh. it was always on the last page and I would yeah that was my that was that was my go-to my first go-to oh, yeah, you turned straight um, to that exactly the, that was the best part um well, part of why I related so much to the book is because, to Margaret, is because I was a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. I didn't really need a bra till I was 14. I didn't have my period till uh, till then. And I was, like, distraught about it. And I remember, it's interesting because, you know, like, Margaret spends the whole book praying to God. And I was doing that. But I was also, <laughs> at the time, my mom was really into, like, new age visualization. And she'd be like... <laughs> If you want something, you have to like, you know, you have to you have to imagine that it is so. And so I would literally lay in bed at night and just and be like, my boobs are growing bigger every day. (laughs) And I would like imagine them. I would imagine them just like popping out of my chest, like sprouting, like, you know, like time lapse photography. (laughs) And um, that's incredible. Yeah. So I, I mean, I don't know, just some of the things that I feel like I did in pursuit of feeling normal and stuff like that, I feel like were just sad and been ridiculous, you know? <laughs> so. Oh, uh, yeah. No, that does sound like something that I can imagine a Judy Bloom heroine doing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I'm, honestly, I think that's why I like, that's why I love her so much. I feel like she said all the embarrassing stuff that, that like nobody really admits out loud. So there's something so, uh, something that's just felt like such a relief to read that, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like, okay, I'm oh, not yeah. the only one doing this, doing these, you know, ridiculous things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely uh, is comforting and validating to know that it's a universal experience. Yeah, yeah. And so do you have memories of reading Margaret as a, as an adolescent? Oh yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I remember exactly the moment when my friend told me about the book and that was the moment she actually she told me and they do this exercise and it makes <laughs> your, you know, makes your chest grow and she showed me how to do it and everything. Um and then I went and got the book the next day and started to read it. And that was I mean, I really was like on a, a Judy Bloom binge around that age, like really read everything, 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 everything. Um, and then finally had gotten through all of it and read Forever. That was the one that I hadn't read. Have you read that one? Oh, my God. I spent like sixth grade in like the back of the class classroom during recess, like reading all the dirty parts out loud to my friends. <laughs> Oh my god, yeah, because I was so that's so funny. You read it in sixth grade, so did I. And I remember, like, I remember getting to the first, just the very, very right off. I knew, like, oh, I'm way too young to read this. So I, I was like, <laughs> I got so Ralph, I'm gonna shut yeah. the door and read it, like, just as fast as I can, absorb all of it. 
Oh my god, yeah. I mean, Ralph is like I will never forget Ralph. I will I will never hear the name Ralph and not laugh. <laughs> no, you can't meet a person with that name and not No. No. <laughs> uh, if if anybody listening to this doesn't know what that means, then I highly recommend going yes, reading forever. Read the read the book. Yeah. Yes, which I don't think I've done in 20 years, but I'm pretty sure it holds up. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no, totally. They all do. Yeah. They do, um, but they don't necessarily, I can sort of understand why, you know, I've read about Judy talking about her books and how, you know, she didn't really, she didn't want any of them to be adapted, correct? Like until fairly Mm -hmm. recently. Um, And I guess, you know, being familiar with them, you can kind of see why, like they're sort of, they're sort of episodic. There isn't like a ton of plot. It's more about feelings, kind of like what you were saying about, you know, memories of adolescence. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, is is that sort of why you think she initially didn't think Margaret would make a, a, a good movie? Was she just kind of afraid people wouldn't do it justice or would try to, you know, sex it up or something for like a lack of a better word? No, I really honestly, I I think the book just meant so much to her and it meant so much to so many people. She was afraid of it being screwed up, you know, mm-hmm. Um of it being like cheesy or of it being cheesy and also of it being, you know, kind of Disney-fied, you know, mm-hmm. uh, made into something really glossy and poppy and, and you know, um, very opposite from what she's known for, which is just those, those very honest details and, and characters who are flawed and confused and, you know, and so, the way I understand it, she was worried. She was worried that it would be like somebody would sand all the edges off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's how she felt until she heard your pitch. Uh, from what I've read, um, so what what did you tell her? How how did you change her mind? Well, you know, I to hear her tell the story, it sounds like it was a few different things. Um, First, I, I I wrote her a letter, just which was honestly just like a love letter, like pouring my heart out, telling her how much her work meant to me and and how much it had affected me in all sorts of different ways. Not only was it kind of a lifeline when I was you know when I was that age, but it also turned me into a reader, and and I think honestly by extension a writer in a way because a, a lot of the stuff I'm writing today has roots in in Judy Bloom. Um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, so I told her a lot of that. And then I think the other thing was that she had just seen my first film, The Edge of Seventeen, and she mm-hmm. felt like that captured adolescence in a way that she had spent a lot of years trying to capture adolescence. So I, I that, and then plus that I, um, you know, that I work with, uh, Jim Brooks. So I think it was kind of a combo of those things that made her feel safe to to do this mm-hmm. yeah and the and the movie itself I think is like very true to the book it's like such a joy to watch it um I had a I had a wonderful time um I, oh, I before we before we turn to the movie though I do I'll have another question which about the kind of lead up in the process um which is uh so after you wrote the letter correct you and Jim went to Key West to talk to Judy about it in person Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Within days. It was like we I felt like, oh, wait a minute. I think there's a chance because the way that she wrote back, it felt like, ooh, I think maybe, you know, maybe she might be softening on this stance. And so we got on a plane 
so mm-hmm. fast. I mean, to try to, you know, get in there and um and persuade her. And so it was really it was like a two hour lunch. We went we went to her house and sat down. But yeah, so by the end of that meeting, it was it was actually Judy's husband who said, So we're doing this, right? And we were like, are, are we? Okay, cool. You know, and we kind of looked at Judy and she was like, yeah, and nodded. And then we were, and then we were off to the races. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Uh, So when it came to time to actually write the screenplay, how, how did you start? Where, what was the first scene you wrote? I started from the beginning, um, but it was, honestly, it was a tough script to start, mostly because it's just when you're adapting something that's like, that's so beloved and people have so many feelings about and people are really worried someone will screw up. It's just a tremendous amount of pressure. And I, and I think that, I think that like, that sort of self-consciousness is the enemy of creativity. It's it's so hard to write when you have all those people in your head. Um, so the first couple of weeks of writing, I felt like I was just kind of a nervous wreck at the keyboard. It was like everything I would type and every time I would make a change, I would delete it and question myself, you know, and be like, is someone going to be mad at me that I did that? And then at some point, I just had to... I just sort of had to like shoo everybody out of the room, all these sort of imaginary people I had in my head. I had to kind of get them out of the room and just just write as somebody who is a diehard fan of Judy Bloom and the book. You know, if I could just serve this one fan, then I felt like I would be doing it justice, you know? Mm-hmm. And also I think also I think an adaptation, it requires you to make certain changes to to make it work for the medium. Um, and so I actually think a an adaptation that's that's too literal can wind up betraying the book, you know. Um, so it really came down to how do I deliver the spirit of the book, the soul of the book, the way the way the book made you feel, how do we make the movie make you feel that way too? you know and if we've done that, then, that I think we've we've succeeded. Mm-hmm. And so when you yeah. were kind of weighing those, like what changes you wanted to make or like storylines that you wanted to expand on, like how did you, it seems like uh, the story of uh, Margaret's mother, who's played so wonderfully by Rachel McAdams is maybe like the best example of something that is not as, you know, the book is told so like completely from Margaret's perspective that there isn't really mm-hmm. room to kind of follow anybody else. But so how did you make the decision to give her kind of more to do in the movie? Yeah. Um, well, part of it was because when I reread it, when I reread the book as an adult, I related to Barbara. There were seeds there that actually that I felt were really interesting and made me want to know more about her. Whereas when I read it as a kid, I had no idea 
what was going on with the parents. I, they were, I was sort of oblivious to them, you know? Um, yeah, you sort of and, read like my parents, like my, I don't know my grandparents and my mom doesn't talk to them anymore. And you're just kind of like, okay, and don't really think yeah, about whatever. how difficult. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. And- <laughs> exactly. Let's get back to the boobs, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I was, I was really, I, I had no idea what was going on with the parents. But when I reread it, I was like, oh, that's really, it's very interesting. The experience was I related to Margaret. I went, I, I, I went back to all of those feelings, but I actually felt myself relating to Barb. And so um, there were certain seeds in there that I wanted to just plant and see what would grow up out of them. Um, And I thought it was very interesting that she was, she'd made this move to the suburbs, but she's an artist and she sort of doesn't fit in and she's trying to. And at the time I was thinking a lot about my own experiences of motherhood that I've, I think motherhood is an incredibly complicated experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly when you're a mom who also has a career and that you care about desperately. And so uh, when I, when I went to go make the edge of 17, I was away from my son at the time he was two, uh, two and some change. I was away from him for two and a half months. I mean, really saw him for like one weekend and that was it. And the guilt I had was just crushing. I mean, just awful. And then I also had, and then I also had guilt because there were moments also where I didn't feel guilty and then I felt guilty for not feeling guilty. I mean, it was really just like an absolute spiral um, of shame. And by the time I got home, I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to work for a while. I'm just going to do all the mom things. I'm going to be a great mom. I'm going to, I'm going to set the play dates and do, you know, volunteer at the preschool and do all the things and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I did nothing but that. And by, you know, the second or third month of that, I was, I was miserable. So (laughs) I, so I found that I really had to somehow square these two things. I somehow had to make them coexist and find some sort of balance, um, which I still haven't found. And I feel like Mm -hmm. I'm constantly, you know, I'm constantly screwing up on one or the other. Um, And I don't know, I've I've now come to the point where I'm like, I don't know if it exists. I don't know if that perfect balance exists. Um, I'm always reaching for it, but. um, Oh yeah, you can't help but try, even though it's, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's doomed to failure because we have these crazy expectations of ourselves. Yes, Um, yeah. But it does it does seem like uh, like Barb ends up in a better place than she is at the beginning of the movie. So there is that hope. Yep. And and also I, I liked, um, you know, I also think there's something about saying no to some of those things, some of those like, you know, m- traditional motherhood things like volunteering at the PTA. And doing when a- she says no to the PTA mom, that is like a very satisfying <laughs> moment. <laughs> yes. Because you're not allowed to. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I feel like there's no worse crime than being a selfish mother. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's honestly what a lot of my guilt was about. I was just like, oh, my God. I'm like, do I care more about me than I care about my kid? Like, this is just, it really was a lot to, um, a lot to, a lot to uh, unpack and still is. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're having to make those choices. Um, but I love that in the end, she says, 
you know, she, she doesn't want to do it. And it's so, and, and that's something we don't get to say out loud because people sort of look at you like, you're not allowed to say that. You just have to do these things. Like, that's what we all do. Um, so yeah. And I think she played it beautifully. Yeah, she's so great in the movie. And I also uh, wanted to talk to you about Abby, who plays Margaret, um, who is incredible. I mean, she carries the entire movie. She's so young. She seems so natural. Uh, tell me about finding her, how how long that process was, how you knew that she was right for the role. Yeah, you know, we saw so many girls. I mean, so, you know, everyone under, under the sun um, came through and auditioned. But she, as soon as she walked through the door, it was like, a few words came out of her mouth and we knew instantly it was her and it was, and that was it. I mean, we stopped looking. It was, <laughs> there she was. Um, I think there's just something about her that's so, so natural and so true. Um, and also she's able to convey so much without saying anything. Um, mm-hmm. And that's partially, I think what is difficult about playing Margaret is she's internal you know it's not like she's not a super loud character she's she's often sort of sitting on uh the outside of the circle thinking things but not saying anything um and so abby was able to just convey so much just with her body and her face um and also she has this relatability that is i don't know like like nothing else she really margaret margaret has to be this character that that you relate to and you see yourself in. So in that way, she not only had to be Margaret, she sort of had to be all of us, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's what the book, that's what the book does so well is Margaret's this character. A lot of us project ourselves upon a lot of us see Mm -hmm. ourselves in her. Um, And so we needed an actress who could, who could, who could do that, who could feel sort of like an every girl in that same way. Mm-hmm. which is not, yeah, and who, not an easy task yeah, yeah. for sure um, and she has to also do some things in the movie that are you know it, embarrassment is kind of key to <laughs> Margaret and like you know yes. she has to ask for a bra and she has to beg for her yes. period and we must increase our butts and all of that like how <laughs> how do you how do you direct real it's one thing reading a character mm-hmm. like saying these things but it's another like watching them and I'm sure having to direct an actual like child to do these things how how do you yeah. kind of find the right balance when you're directing scenes of, you know, adolescent humiliation, I guess. Like yes. how do you make yeah. make them feel yeah. like comfortable and yeah. safe? Yeah. I um well first of all, I actually I love to have the kids do a lot of improvising. So actually a lot of what's in the film is improvised. A lot of times I will will sit down and and start to rehearse a scene and I'll say Okay, but when we roll, you can't say any of the words that are actually in the script. So you got to say it in your own words. And there's something about that that um, that just forces a freshness. It just it, it forces them to be in the moment and really listen to their partner because they can't they can't fall back into the the memorization. Um, and so, for instance, when when the girls are looking at the anatomy book and and the drawing of the penis um, for the first time, I I actually filmed them seeing it for the first time. So I, <laughs> I just said, look, just you're going to see it, just react however you would react. Um, and actually Gretchen's line where she says, it looks like a thumb. <laughs> that's her. <laughs> that's, that's just 
That's her honest reaction. Um, actually, all of their, everything they say pretty much is just off the top of their heads and just real, you know, 11 and 12 year old girls reacting to this, reacting to this photo. So, oh, um, that's so this, great. this drawing. So, yeah. Um, so, well, very often it was that. It was just sort of pushing them out of, um, out of the, the limits of the script so that they could just be in character, you know, and just um, just act on the fly. I, I feel like that's really important with the kids because it's so easy to get stuck in that kind of cadence, that sort of like memorization cadence, you know? Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of it was how to just push them out of that and surprise them and give them new new things to do. Mm-hmm. Were there any things yeah. in the script that like surprised them as like this is the way things used to be? Because I, I don't know, I think of kids today as being, God, I sound a billion years old. I think of kids today <laughs> as being like better adjusted and, you know, they're they don't have as many I imagine or I hope that they don't have as many like hang ups about their bodies. And, you know, there's been a lot of body acceptance that's happened since my adolescence in the 90s and 2000s, let alone in the 70s when Margaret came out, like, did they, were they, like, surprised at all to see the way things are depicted in the description in the movie? Or did it seem like, you know, this is just kind of the way it still is for for girls? Uh, They did, no, they they absolutely felt like it was the way it still is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no, it it was... um, it definitely didn't feel like, oh, this is a relic from the past and we're over all mm-hmm. this stuff. I mean, it it it, it felt contemporary to them. I mean, at least that that's what they expressed. Um, yeah. I mean, even just when I, you know, getting a group of kids together and having them play spin the bottle while you're filming it. I mean, the kids are, they're kids. Like, they're reacting as they're... As real kids reacting to one kid they know having to kiss another kid they know. I mean, it's not it's not acting. It's not made up. I mean, that's you know the giggles and all of it is just mm-hmm. is 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 absolutely real. Yeah. Um. And yeah. I have to ask also when one of the girls say that having a period kind of smells like the monkey bars. <laughs> where, did, where did that line come from? Was that one of them? Oh my God. No, that was that was actually um, so. One of the things that I love about Judy Bloom is I feel like she says the unsayable. You know, she says the embarrassing bits, and so um, and so. When I was writing that scene, I thought that would be an interesting detail to have them to have them mention. And then I started to think. What does it smell like? What would you at that age? What would you at that age <laughs> compare it to? <laughs> I was like, it's kind of metallic and earthy. Like, what would you? What would that? And then, and then the monkey bars came out of that. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I went back and read the book after I watched the adaptation. Um, and it is like very striking to me, like how similar the two are. Um, and, you know, one of the nice things about this book and, and Judy Bloom books more broadly is that, you know, there isn't it doesn't have like a neat bow at the end or anything. It kind of ends, you know, Margaret is still searching. She still doesn't really know if she what religion she feels like she belongs to or if she even thinks religion is for her. Um, was mm-hmm. it Im- important to you to kind of keep that feeling in the movie as well? Yeah. Um, her spiritual journey is very much 
the reason I wanted to make the film in the first place. I found it so profound when I when I went back and read the book. Um, there was just something about the way the uncertainty in her life at, at that moment and the uncertainty of adolescence makes her reach out for something greater beyond her. And, and that's something I just so deeply related to. I think that's that's the age I started to do that. I started to go like, hey, is anybody in charge of all this? Because <laughs> things are getting crazy down here, <laughs> uh, you know? And I'm like, I want to make sure somebody's, you know, got the wheel here because um, because I wasn't sure if I was going to be okay, you know? Mm-hmm. And so so, um, so it struck me as really profound that the, you know, the uncertainty of adolescence would make her reach out. And I was really struck and moved by the fact that she she carves out her own sense of spirituality. It's not something that she finds inside a church or, you know, a synagogue. It's not it's not something she can find in organized religion, but she feels a connection to something that she can't quite name. And, you know, and that and that relationship is wavering, you know, sometimes she feels like there's something there and other times she's she's not sure and she thinks maybe maybe there is nobody up there and she's just, you know, she's just sort of moving through life alone. But I love I love the way she comes back to this sort of sense of hope and and you know you know that she's going to continue on her own spiritual journey and um and that search is going to continue you know which i mm-hmm. which i feel like i i'm still in that search i'm still constantly i feel like i live with sort of a question mark at the center of myself about the mystery of you know uh, of why we're all here and how this all works and and all of it that that never goes away for me <laughs> um and i love that this is the beginning of of her search Mm-hmm. And being all like learning to kind of be okay with uncertainty is the ultimate like message. Yeah, and I and actually I think in a lot of ways I think that's so well articulated because I think in a lot of ways that is adulthood. You know, adulthood is learning. Growing up is learning how to be okay with not knowing. You know, mm-hmm. um, as a kid, you sort of feel like your parents are God, and whatever they say, you believe, and it feels very safe. And then at some point, you realize, oh no, they don't know anything either. Like they're not in charge. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, yeah. And so, I, yeah. So there's something there's something about that that just struck me as really resonating. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich. And David? David Canfield 97. And Hillary? Hillabuster. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. Renee. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. 
All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>